thank you. My name is Jane Gordon. I'm a fellow at the Centre for the Study of Human Rights here at LSE and co-founder and legal director of Sisters for Change, an international non-profit working to combat violence against women. It's my great pleasure to warmly welcome you and our two speakers, Shami Chakrabati and Francesca Klug, to this special event hosted by the Centre for the Study of Human Rights, Rhetoric and Reality from Magna Carta to Human Rights Today. The event marks the launch of Francesca Klug's book, A Magna Carta for All Humanity, homing in on human rights, published to coincide with the 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta. Copies will be available on sale outside after the event, and the hard copy has just arrived today. Before I say more about the, uh, the event and formally introduce our two wonderful speakers, and one or two practical matters. First of all, there are no planned fire tests this evening, so if there is a fire alarm, please evacuate the lecture theatre using the exit doors, marked and as directed by stewards. Second, please can I remind you to silence or switch off your mobile phones. However, any tweeters amongst you who would like to comment on the event, and we warmly encourage you to do so, please use the hashtag LSEKLUG. Third, the event is being filmed tonight, and technology permitting, the live recording will be freely available on the LSE website later this month. Think about this before launching into your life story during the audience discussion in the Q&A at the end. Okay, let me turn to the format for the next couple of hours. Tonight, we are in conversation mode. In a few moments, I will invite Francesca and Shami, long-standing colleagues and erstwhile close friends, to begin their conversation and exchange of ideas and personal reflections around the key themes of Francesca's book. At around 7.25 or 7.30, Francesca and Shami will bring their conversation to a close and we will open the discussion to you, the audience. The event will close at 8pm and audience members are then invited to join us outside the theatre for a drink and to buy Francesca's book. (laughs) So, let me formally introduce the speakers. First, the person who is the reason why we are all here this evening, LSE's own Francesca Klug Professorial Research Fellow. It is a personal pleasure for me to introduce Francesca. She is not only a long-time colleague and human rights conspirator, she is a dear personal friend. Francesca has been an important part of the LSE Centre for the Study of Human Rights for many years as Director of the Human Rights Futures Project, exploring and analysing the direction of travel of the human rights discourse in the UK. However, as well as launching her new book this evening, tonight marks the end of Francesca's role as Director of the Human Rights Futures Project, so we are particularly pleased to welcome such a special collection of her close friends, past and present colleagues and students to celebrate the occasion. I know Francesca's husband Mick and daughter Tanya are also in the audience this evening, so let me extend a personal warm welcome to them. I am pleased, though, to say that Francesca will continue to be connected to the LSE Centre in the years to come as visiting fellow. Before joining LSE, Francesca was a senior research fellow at the Human Rights Incorporation Project at King's College when she advised the then Labour government on the model for incorporation of the European Convention on Human Rights into UK law, reflected in the Human Rights Act 1998. 
Francesca was a member of the then government's task force responsible for overseeing implementation of the Human Rights Act. Between 2006 and 2009, she was commissioner on the newly established and long-awaited Equality and Human Rights Commission. In 2007, she was appointed a member of the Bill of Rights and Responsibilities Reference Group at the Ministry of Justice. The vantage point which each of these roles has given Francesca in relation to governmental and wider political responses to human rights over the UK over the last two decades are explored in her book. As Shami notes in the foreword, it is Francesca's direct and personal experience which gives her book its unique voice and makes her so well-placed to examine the vested interests pitted against the Human Rights Act today. Francesca has researched, written and lectured extensively on human rights and builders of rights for 25 years. Her book includes a rich, rich selection of both published and unpublished articles, papers and lectures. In terms of my own working connection with Francesca, we both had the pleasure in 2010 of co-editing a special issue of the European Human Rights Law Review to mark the 10th anniversary of the Human Rights Act. Our second speaker is also very well known to you, Shami Chakrabati, respected Director of Liberty, the National Council for Civil Liberties. Shami studied law here at LSE before being called to the bar in 1994. She worked as a lawyer in the Home Office from 1996 until 2001 when she joined Liberty. I first met Shami at the beginning of her career at Liberty when we discussed internment and anti-terrorism laws in Northern Ireland in the context of the then Labour government's proposals to introduce the first, and as we know of many, wide-ranging anti-terrorism laws in the aftermath of 9-11. Since becoming Director of Liberty in 2003, Shami has written, spoken and broadcast widely on human rights. Liberty has gone from strength to strength. Shami's own first book on liberty was published last year. And now let me turn to introduce Francesca's book, A Magna Carta for All Humanity, Homing In on Human Rights. In her book, Francesca sets out on an interdisciplinary exploration of universal human rights. After a short introduction to the myth or marvel of the Magna Carta, Francesca takes us in the first part of her book on what she terms a time traveller's journey to explore the ethic behind the modern conception of universal human rights which evolved in response to the horrors of World War II and then to the regional manifestation of this global phenomenon in the shape of the European Convention of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms. In part two of the book, Francesca provides an illuminating and personal account of the reception of universal human rights values here at home in the UK through the introduction of the Human Rights Act 1998. Francesca's book has been published to coincide with the 800th anniversary of the signing of Magna Carta by King John on the 15th of June 1215. I was very tempted to say that anybody who has missed the fact that this is the 800th year of the Magna Carta who is in this audience should leave now. <laughs> but this is an educational establishment, so I should be tolerant. Much has been made of the 800th anniversary. In April of this year, all 21,000 UK state primary schools were sent a copy of the Magna Carta. In May, a giant hand-embroidered copy of Magna Carta's Wikipedia page, measuring 13 metres long, was unveiled at the British Library. 
The bulk of the text was sown by prisoners. I'm guessing they weren't given a vote on whether they wanted to participate. (laughs) WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange embroidered the word freedom from the Ecuadorian embassy. Fugitive US intelligence leaker Edward Snowden embroidered the word liberty from Moscow. On 13 and 14 June, a River Thames pageant comprising a flotilla of 200 boats and 23 charter bearers accompanying a replica Magna Carta on a two-day voyage down the Thames will be the flagship event to mark the 800th anniversary. The Magna Carta has come to stand for the rule of law, curbs on unbridled executive power and the freedom to enjoy basic liberties. And yet, the Charter is more akin to a private contract directed mainly at protecting the financial interests of a very small group of 150 to 180 rich Englishmen. As the late Lord Bingham commented in 2010, many of the Charter's clauses are of local, particular or feudal interest only, and I quote, about as interesting as our rules for recycling rubbish are likely to be to our descendants 800 years from now. The Magna Carta has become more influential for what it is believed to have said than for what it actually said. But such is the prevailing power of the myth that the Prime Minister has swallowed it wholesale and in 2014 described the Magna Carta as paving the way for democracy, equality and the rule of law and as the foundation of all our laws and liberties. As Francesca Riley comments in her book, It is not very challenging to nostalgically support a medieval document that in legal terms is effectively dead. And perhaps that begins to explain why there are so many of us not feeling in celebratory mood. So much so that there is an alternative Magna Carta festival planned for this Saturday the 13th of June in Clerkenwell. In the same year that this medieval charter's 800th birthday is being widely celebrated, the Conservative government has announced its intention to bring forward proposals to repeal the Human Rights Act and to replace it with a British or English Bill of Rights. Scotland has been unequivocal in its rejection of the government's plan to repeal the Human Rights Act and there are growing calls for the Northern Ireland Executive to do the same. The future of the UK's commitment to international human rights standards appears to stand in doubt. And this is why Francesca's book is so timely. Francesca acknowledges in her book that those of us who believe in the enduring importance of human rights as they were developed in the wake of the Second World War have, if we are honest, struggled to articulate the purpose and value of human rights legislation in the land of Magna Carta. Francesca tackles head-on the hypocrisy surrounding the human rights discourse in the United Kingdom and sets out to answer why features lauded by senior politicians as totemic in the Magna Carta are condemned as dangerous when applied in the context of the Human Rights Act or the European Convention on Human Rights. So without any further words from me, I hand you over to Shami and Francesca. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jane. Um, Francesca, congratulations on the book. Thank you, Shami. It's a great book. Uh, bloody good forward, I thought. That's the best bit. Um, no, no, but seriously, but Jane very helpfully um, reminded us of the basic structure of the book. Yeah? So we've got the first part that, that really digs into the ethics 
the ethical foundation and development of, of human rights. Then we have Act Two, which is this, um, you know, this, this wonderful personal story, um, really, that, that leads to the Human Rights Act, that you had such an important role in, uh, in campaigning for publicly, privately, and some of the thinking that led to that extraordinary... Um, can you not hear me? Speak towards. I'm not going to speak to you anymore. <laughs> We've already fallen out. We've already fallen out. We can make this much more. You see, I, I feel I feel more de- debating already. It's about not looking at people. I like looking that way because if I look that way, there are too many faces I recognise. Oh, I know. It makes me very nervous. Well, isn't there a TV show where you have an audience with Francesca Klug and then and then people say hello? I, I was your boyfriend at uh, at the LSE. Now that would be interesting. No, we can't do that because mix it. Okay. Um, so the first part of the book is the ethical foundations and development of human rights. Second part of the book, your very personal observations of how we got the Human Rights Act. Though you do, in my view, rather underplay your own, your own role and importance, but that's, that's, uh, that's just the way you are. And then you've got the anthology of previous writings. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about why that structure Well, yes. Um, This book has been a very long time coming. And in fact, I have to welcome here uh, two colleagues from Routledge who come in a long line of colleagues who've been incredibly patient with me. Uh, Because I think I was first approached by Routledge to write this book maybe eight years ago. Uh, And the idea is it was going to be a sequel to my previous book, Values for Godless Age, which was published in 2000. So it was probably about, I don't know, 2003, 4, you know, it was going to be a sequel. When I produced nothing for about six years, we had to agree this was not a sequel. Um, So my previous editor... Uh, Heidi Bogtago, who was wonderful, came to see me here at the LSE and she said, look, I tell you what, you've written loads and loads of stuff in all these years. You've just not written anything for us. So why don't you think of your favourite pieces and what you like most, put them together and we'll try and publish that. Well, it took another two years until I got round to that. And I did exactly what she suggested. And she was so clever. Because in the process of doing that, I began to think of new things I wanted to say. So it ended up being a much longer book than it was intended. But the opportunity of including previously published and some unpublished material, wow, that's exciting, isn't it? Um, including you know, a couple of lectures that I've given here at the LSC and a speech that I wrote, which is not at all polished, not at all well put together. But I wrote it just after the Human Rights Act came in. And it was a, well... It is very self-serving, but it was just a tiny wee bit prescient. So I thought I'd stick that in in the end about what we might need to do to stop the backlash. And by putting those together, I was able to look back and look forward and realise that in this privileged journey that I've had as a very protected person in this ivory tower at the LSE, um, able to think about these ideas... There's been an incredible journey that has reached this stage, both here in the UK and in the wider world. And because just at the moment of the 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta, lo and behold, we're living in a country where the government of the day, at that point when I was writing it, I didn't know whether they'd be the government of the day, but it was certainly the Prime Minister of the day and his party, was suggesting that at the very same year that we celebrate the 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta, we 
may well repeal the Human Rights Act and even withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights. Like it does in mine. Just a little bit. It's more than that. It's how did we come to this? You know, how did we come... You know, if, if, if Eleanor Roosevelt were here, uh, she just wouldn't believe it. I mean, she really, really believed this was something for all time, for all eternity, as did all the people who wrote from all over the world, actually, who wrote the Universal Declaration of Human Rights with her. Uh, and for that matter, um, David Maxwell Fife, the Tory... Subsequently, Home Secretary, uh, Deputy Prosecutor at the um, Nuremberg Tribunal, he he, you know, was in cahoots with Churchill to be behind the European Convention on Human Rights, and he said, he said, some things are surely universal. And that's kindness and tolerance, and he expects other values, which he said are the heritage of all humankind. It wasn't just Eleanor Roosevelt and the drafters of the Universal Declaration who spoke like that. I hope that his grandson is somewhere in the audience today. If you're here, Tom, will you put your hand up? So, I, yeah, fantastic. And thank you for the unpublished material from your grandfather that's in the book that helped me think think this through. So it seemed like a moment in time. It seemed like it was. About time I did my bit for outrage and produced this book. We're so glad that you, that you did. <laughs> but to go back to um, Magna Carta, I mean, in the words of that great legal philosopher, uh, Tony Hancock, <laughs> remember Magna Carta, did she die in vain? <laughs> um, no, but so this, this is quite an important point because it is just bizarre to me. There are going to be people drinking champagne at Runnymede whilst uh, calling to, to scrap the Human Rights Act. Um, and, of course, one of the things, one of the criticisms that is put to us about the Human Rights Act is mission creep and, and you know, they detest the living instrument idea. I'm like, do, you, do you mind if I just read a, oh, a, a couple do. of lines from your book? Because this is early on. I say please do, because the more you will read from it, the more you will speak, the more I can shut up, which no, I, we I would like to do up, now. But, no, but I, just think that, I just think this is a really interesting observation that, you, that I hadn't thought of until you... Uh, and, there, and there are lots of things like that. There are lots of things I haven't thought of. This is a wonderful book for, for, for looking at old material in a really new way. And, and you talk about the Magna Carta in the introduction. And you say, mirroring those present-day politicians who complained that current human rights treaties have been given a meaning that they were never intended by their original authors, in the early days, the mediators chose to referee the ongoing dispute between the barons and King John. Uh, insisted in writing that the words of the Charter must be read in a restricted sense. The drafters did not themselves envisage this continuous process of reinterpretation, yet if they had been taken at their word and a narrow literal reading had been maintained throughout the centuries, the Magna Carta would never have become the inclusive, iconic document that still has residence today. It would probably have no more shelf life than any other medieval manuscript, let alone become the source of a major national celebration in 2015 to commemorate its 800th birthday. In fact, I think I'd go on to say it might have become chip paper by now. Well, indeed. And yet this is, because as we know, it's, it's, it's the myth and the poetry now of Magna Carta, not, uh, not really the, you know, legal, any legal protections within it. But what about, what about that illogic? What about that thinking? Do you want to, to reflect on it? I mean, I, I think what struck me when I came, because the, the, the sort of thing I really didn't know a lot about, I'm going to be honest, the, the, the cheek, the chutzpah even, of calling a book a Magna Carta for humanity, when if I tell the truth before I started writing this, although I had the Magna Carta on my wall in my office, which my dad bought for me when I um, went to work for Liberty, 
um, 25 years ago. Um, I hadn't really... I was really... child labour in a human rights organisation. Oh, yeah, I wish. Um, I hadn't really absorbed just how bad a lot of it is but uh, until I came to write this book. But, ha- you know, having said that, I mean, what do you expect in medieval England? There are some phenomenal... Um, statements in it which do make you really stand up and think that they this reflects the human spirit that 800 years ago um to no one will we deny or delay right or justice no free man free man shall be seized or imprisoned except by the lawful judgment of his peers or the law of the land. I mean, this is stirring stuff. It doesn't mean anything like it is often claimed it means. It's what individual rights that people can claim. But it's fair to say that from these precepts came the notion that, you know, that even the king had to apparently uh, be controlled by law. I mean, in practice, three months later, King John, in cahoots with the Pope, annulled the Magna Carta. Do you know that? It lasted for three months. It was then reissued and reissued again. But the, but the sanctions in it were watered down. And what's fascinating about that is two things. First of all, and this is what Shami is getting at, if the language hadn't been very loosely structured and therefore allow itself to be reinterpreted again and again over the generations so that meaning is inferred in it that was never intended by the original drafters, it wouldn't be relevant now at all. We wouldn't even be talking about it. And, of course, this is one of the big attacks on the European Convention on Human Rights uh, that the government makes, that all of its critics make, that, you know, it was never intended to be interpreted in the way that it is now. It wasn't written with those things in mind. Well, of course not, because of course the drafters didn't know that there would be HIV, you know, that people would need protection from discrimination on grounds of HIV. They didn't know that transgendered issues would be massive in the 21st century. Of course not. But this is the whole point about higher laws expressed in broad terms, is they get reinterpreted. But I also think, frankly, that if the, human, if the Magna Carta really did what it says on the tin, if, it, if to no one was justice and right denied or delayed, then Muslim terror suspects would not have had to rely on the Human Rights Act not to be detained indefinitely, and Irish terror suspects before them. In other words, if the Magna Carta had been as effective as the Human Rights Act, I suspect the 800th anniversary would have been cancelled. <laughs> so no parties and champagne for effective bills of rights that, that, that irritate politicians? On the other hand, if the Human Rights Act was a dead duck legally, I'm sure we could celebrate it every year. <laughs> but I think there's another factor beyond the law going on here, and that is what it says about us as a society. And there are different ways of using the Magna Carta as a mirror. Clearly, Eleanor Roosevelt, when she said, when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted in 1948, let it be a Magna Carta for all men everywhere, was her precise terms, but in 2000 and... What year are we in? 2015, yeah. It's a Magna Carta for all humanity, same meaning. Um... She saw the Magna Carta as a reflection of the human spirit, which had been 
uh, you know, which have been an inspiration to people who come after. And she mentioned other iconic documents, by the way, not just the Magna Carta, which had ins- inspired the drafters of the Universal Declaration. I mean, she could have, she didn't, but some of the drafters did mention the Babylonian Declaration of Hurumbai, which was written 2,000 years before Christ. You know, this kind of thinking goes back rather a longer time than the Magna Carta. Well, that, I'm interested in that because, because, um, so we've, let's leave Magna Carta just for a moment because she's, you know... I didn't make my point then. No, of course you made my point. Oh, sorry. Make my point? sorry. So but that, that's one way of looking at its inspiration. <laughs> but the other way, which well, is what I think... not wanting to speak and all Yeah, that. no, well, you know what I'm like. Once I start, you can't <laughs> shut me up. Um, but the other way of looking at it, and this is what I think... These are the competing narratives that we're hearing, is that... Um, it's not that the Magna Carta is an inspiration for what's come afterwards, but the Magna Carta is where we begin and end. It is the mirror to our society, a, a, a document from the Middle Ages, which has all the misogyny and anti-Semitism that you would expect a document from the Middle Ages to have within it. There's only three and a half uh, articles still on the statute book, and I read out two of them to you. But the Magna Carta, which is now compulsory teaching in schools, has some very unpleasant things. You know, it celebrates forced marriage, etc. It also has, by the way, some social and economic rights within it, which are not relevant for now, but are an interesting reflection of the horrors that uh, some people have towards social and economic rights in our current era. So my point is simply that there is a struggle going on from the meaning of the Magna Carta. Mm. Is it a, a reflection of the human spirit, which we have developed over you know, a long period now and come to the point where we can celebrate universal human rights, or is it taking us to something medieval, which we're saying, this is who Britain is, actually it's the English Magna Carta, this is who England is, and what does that tell us about where we are in our journey, that, that, is, that this is presented as a mirror to our society, and therefore we need to repeal this foreign human rights act and European Convention on Human Rights and go back to celebrating essential Englishness. Absolutely. I've made my point now, no, I'll shut up. With, no, no, please, you, you, you made your point incredibly well. So, so to fast forward, because we are time travellers when we read your book... Um, to fast forward from Magna Carta to the post-war settlement, to that extraordinary, unique moment in human history yet to be repeated, really, when you think about how difficult it is to get that kind of international agreement on anything from climate change to, to, you know, to, to so many of the challenges face, facing the planet now. Um, some people... Again, a lot, of, a lot of this is about um, who claims the story, who claims the legend, and for what purposes. There is, um, there is a school of thought that the, um, the Universal Declaration is, is little more than, um, than an articulation of, of Western Enlightenment values. Not really universal at all. It's uh, perhaps a little cultural imperialism. Um, what, what do you say to that? Well, I, I think the, the part of the book I most enjoy is addressing this issue because, like many of us may be in this room, I have what Confucius actually called just two-man-mindedness. I learned a lot about Confucianism um, writing this book because there was a Confucian drafter of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But I have two 
perspectives in my own mind on this. Um, and it's important not to sentimentalise uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and all that is, its progeny that has come out of it, including the European Convention on Human Rights, which was, by the way, very explicitly drafted as the first attempt to bring in legally enforceable uh, rights from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And that's clear in the preamble to the European Convention. I only mention that as an aside so that everyone in this room, some people are not so familiar with this, may understand the link between us talking about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the European Convention on Human Rights and therefore the impasse that we're at today. On this issue of cultural imperialism, when the Universal Declaration was drafted, the American Anthropology Association, even before the ink was dry, um, criticised the Universal Declaration as a project. Um, what they said basically is that Enlightenment charters pretended to be universal, but they never were. They were relevant only for the particular citizens in the particular countries where they were drafted, like France, like um, America. Whereas this is a pretension to universalism when really it's a, a means of exporting Western liberal enlightenment values and therefore is inherently dangerous and there can be no universal values. This is a very reasonable critique. It's not one that I'm unsympathetic to. When you get into the mind, though, of the drafters and you read their debates, which I had the great privilege of doing over the course of a year in a little attic office and doing very little else and refusing to speak to most of my friends, which it's pretty incredible they've turned up today, given that. You're going to make up for it now, I feel, though. Yeah, they're going to, they're never, they're going to be wanting me back up there <laughs> from now on. To, to read the way that the drafters of the Declaration addressed this themselves was a kind of revelation for me, even though I'd read some of this material before. Um, it has to be said immediately, of course, that in 1947 and 8, when the Declaration was drafted, the whole of sub-Saharan Africa was still colonised. So there were no representatives from sub-Saharan Africa. So there's an immediately, extremely distorted um, drafting process uh, but the, the draft, the, there were 10 Islamic countries represented on the drafting process. There were um, Soviet Union and a whole range of s satellites of the Soviet Union. There was many Latin American countries, very, very active. So you have debates between people of socialists, social democrats, liberals, conservatives, um, Muslims, a Hindu, a Jew... Christians, uh, Christians of a liberal persuasion, Christians of a more conservative persuasion, and they're bringing this to the drafting. And they're saying, this is not a repetition of Enlightenment values. You know, we are inspired by them, I'm paraphrasing here, but not that much, but we need to be, do something new, partly because of the time and place that we're now in, partly because... The Enlightenment went wrong a bit, didn't it, in Europe? It didn't quite turn out as it was meant to. Partly because we're asking different questions. We're not just asking the question, what does it take for humans to be free from state tyranny? We're asking the question, what do humans need to inculcate in themselves in order to live peaceably together in a better world? They're asking the same questions that people of all different kinds of backgrounds who wanted, if we like, were on a journey of progressive politics, wanting to make the world a better place. But as um, Dr. Charles Malik, the Lebanese delegate who was a, a huge input into the declaration, said... 
We need to look at the light from all time. We need the wisdom of prophets, philosophers and poets more than we need law because we've got to this point in the world where we've nearly all killed each other. Um, Half the world is colonised. People have been um, murdered, massacred, genocides. We can't carry on like this and we can't simply say that freedom is the answer. And so the extraordinary, if I can just and then I will stop making this point, medley that is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and could so easily have been and has been abused and used, of course it has, as a Western hegemonic project, quite clearly facts on the ground have caught the imagination of people all around the globe. And today people call themselves human rights defenders all over the world and in fact almost all the interesting thinking and developments in human rights are now in what we call from this perspective the south and the east and not the north and the west and that to me is the clearest answer to the cultural imperialism question. Indeed, I mean I always think that when when people put that question to me about cultural imperialism and, and western values I just say look at the real human rights defenders in the world who actually get arrested and tortured not Chakrabarti, who might get slagged off on the internet, right? And if they're prepared to go out and put their lives on the line, then it's hardly some kind of little Western construct, is it? But how did it strike you when you first came across the Universal Declaration of the European Convention on Human Rights, from your perspective and your family background? Oh, God, I'm supposed to be asking you the questions. (laughs) I think that... um, I think, approaching this from a sort of... Uh, psychological, emotional perspective, which I think it's fair to do sometimes. I think the word empathy is um, underused in the discourse of of, of, of rights and freedoms. I think that um, equal treatment is a sort of legal philosophical concept or non-discrimination, but in human speak, I think the word empathy is really important. I think equal treatment... I think Article 14, for example, is the most important article of the Convention. Why do I say that when there's torture and there's slavery? Because... And sometimes when you speak in schools... what Article 14 is. Article 14 of the Convention is the non-discrimination provision. So it's the provision that says that, that, that there mustn't be discrimination in the application of the other rights and freedoms, privacy, speech, association, and so on. Um, and I think... It's non-discrimination or equal treatment or empathy that is the most important ethical value of all because I find that when people do slag off human rights, they don't actually have a problem with human rights. They love their own, and those are their family and their friends and people that they identify with. It's other people's rights and freedom. You know, my speech is free. Yours is a bit more expensive. But I, but I think the personal... But I think you make a good point about family background and personal experience and all of this because it, it clearly does shape the person and shapes the work and shapes the discourse. Some of your personal reflections in the book are actually, I think, some of the most powerful parts of the argument and um, certainly very poignant. Can I remind you of this one? Um, The bombardment of Gaza by the Israeli government taking place, as I write, in the summer of 2014 has a particular significance for me. The attempted Nazi genocide of the Jewish people killing nearly two-thirds of European Jews was also the catalyst for the UN support for the partition of Palestine in 1947, leading to the creation of the State of Israel the following year, just seven months before the UDHR was adopted. Sixty-six years later and the Israeli government regularly resists all condemnation emanating 
from the international human rights framework that developed directly out of such well-documented suffering. When the many Israeli human rights groups apply international human rights standards to protest against the occupation of Palestinian lands or the blockade of Gaza, they are frequently accused of betrayal. Yet all they are doing is using the same ethical framework which arose from that darkest of periods and applying it as a common standard of achievement for all peoples and all nations everywhere, as the UDHR proclaims. Francesca Club wrote that. It, it, um, it, it did happen that the terrible events in Gaza were happening as I was writing the book and it very nearly stopped me writing the book um, because it felt that there were no words to describe the slaughter that we were witnessing um, and the particular events that had led to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights um, which had galvanised the thinking that for human beings to survive in this world there are some things that must never happen again and there they were happening um, and in the name of State of Israel which is uh, a state that came out of Jewish oppression and uh, my family background was Jewish, it felt um, almost impossible to really express any words um, to address the totally unjustifiable slaughter of innocence that was happening to the people in Gaza. But as I also said in the book, I, didn't, I therefore wrote it at the time and absolutely haven't changed a word of what I wrote when it was actually happening, even though, of course, events have moved on, so figures are not right, although I put footnotes in to correct it, because the point was to capture, capture the moment. But as I said, the point about human rights and why it isn't... <laughs> It isn't an example of a Western Enlightenment project where, you know, they got together in 1948 and said, oh, you know, we'd better go back 150 years, you know, Voltaire, Rousseau, they didn't get it quite right, we'll have another go. The point about that moment in time was that every one of the people that contributed to the Declaration and all the people that are human rights defenders around the world who've developed the thinking had experiences they, they were bringing to the table that made people contemplate what it is to be a human. And the trouble with so much of our discourse about human rights is that we talk about the rights, and I sound like an anti-human rights person in saying this, we talk about the rights and not about the human bit. And human rights are not the same as legal rights. I mean, legal rights are rights bestowed by law. They change depending on the legal framework. The idea of human rights is to find what it is that makes it possible for humans to live in this world. And it's a deeply philosophical, it's, 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 it's moral philosophy, if you like, translated into a document which has then been translated into laws. Right. Would you just unpack that a little more? So we have the ethics of human rights, then there are human rights laws, and then sometimes we get into a kind of legalism. As well. I mean, do you want to just... Talk about the relationship between ethics, law, and legalism. I definitely prefer writing about these things and talking about them. <laughs> um, I, I was absolutely dreading today because I knew I would struggle to talk about it, uh, which is another way of trying to encourage you all to buy the book, of course. Um, but, okay, you talked about empathy, Shami. Um, in the Universal Declaration, it suggests that, you know, all these philosophers who spent a lot of time before the Declaration and since trying to 
come up with a philosophical justification for human rights. Well, they avoided all that, uh, as, as all good delegates would, and basically said in order to do human rights, in order to do it, because it's practice, it's real, mm. you have to have two things, reason and conscience. Not, not just the reason of the Enlightenment, but the conscience that you will see reflected in, the, you know, in, in, in all the, the, the fundamental ethical works of all the great religions. I'll put it like that, going far beyond just the Bible, but including the Bible, because there's a lot of references to the Bible uh, and to the Quran as well, but especially to the Bible by the drafters of the Universal Declaration who took inspiration from the Bible, but wanted to make something real for all human beings everywhere, regardless of which uh, ethical or religious or faith background they came from. So reason and conscience, that's what we need. Now, when you think about that, what they're trying to say is, you know, without empathy, there can't be human rights. And, human, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is not addressed to states, it's addressed to all of us. Mm. We're all human rights defenders, if we wish to be. And human rights are the business of everyone, at all times, and about everyone. That's how you build a good society. But the reality is, as we can see as we sit in this room while people are drowning in the Mediterranean that we don't know how to act on our conscience. And a lot of the time, for most of us, we close our conscience down because we want to get on with our lives. That's just understandable. Um, so we need laws to make this real. And that's where the reason comes in. Mm. Let's think how we can make this real. Now, the problem is that these two are not simply happy soulmates. Law is both the weapon of human rights, but it can also be the catalyst for closing down that human agency, that, that urge to do something, which is, in the end of the day, the essence of human rights. And, yeah. you know, the great Sudanese uh, philosopher, Anne Naim, um, has written about this beautifully. I could read from the book and, uh, his bit, where he says that without law, you know, how do, we even, how do we make any progress at all? That has been our tool, because we don't want to use guns. We, know, we do know about certain presidents... Uh, and prime ministers who believe that you can um, enforce and bring human rights and democracy at the end of a barrel of a gun, or more specifically, shock and awe through bombs. What um, um, Anayim says is that we use law. We don't use guns and bombs. But law then confuses us. It stops us seeing. Cases are base, basically winners. They have winners and losers. We lose a sense of what the ethic of human rights is. And we feel distance from the law, most of us, if we're not lawyers. We feel um, that we have no agency and we have no power. So that brings us, I think, to what is going on in our country now, right. where, where we've got a law called the Human Rights Act, which is both allowed human rights values to come into our society, but has also created a lot of confusion, I think, about what human rights are. And I say that as someone who worked with others to bring the Human Rights Act onto the statute book. But the law didn't create the confusion, did it? Because the law is crystal clear. It's a very easy read. It's not, it's not confusing. It's, hasn't there been really quite deliberate... Um, quite deliberate spin and lies, frankly, about the human rights side by the vested interests pitted against it. Well, there's one very good example, and I, I did enjoy finding these examples. I don't know if Adam Wagner is here, but he, he has a very good blog 
where he, A, gives you very, very good examples, real-life examples of how the Human Rights Act has made a difference to people's lives, some of whom you might feel empathy with, um, but also the extraordinary distortions, which are quite amusing sometimes, that you see um, in the press. And what I was able to do in the book is try and trace them back to um, some of our politicians, um, because um, uh, there have been a few um, politicians from... Uh, both the Conservative and Labour parties, who've said to me very sadly, very solemnly, you know, it's not that we're against the Human Rights Act, but we have to listen to our constituents, you know, and they're telling us it's so unpopular. And, you know, I, I really wish it could be different. And I've said to them more than once, this reminds me of the Jewish joke where the boy kills his parents and then uh, goes to the court and asks for mercy because he's an orphan. <laughs> unpopularity being driven by if it isn't our leading politicians. And there's a great example where our Prime Minister, in one speech, mentioned all the apocryphal stories about the Human Rights Act in one go. It's not easy to get them all in one speech. You know, cats... Uh, cats, um, uh, fiddlers on the roof, you know, the, the oh, guy that... Kentucky, the, the fried, Kentucky chicken. fried chicken. that was given to the, to the guy who stole was yeah. sitting on a roof, and the police have to issue statements saying this was nothing to do with his human rights. We were just trying to negotiate with him to get off the roof, so we gave him some food. Then there's, you know, um, police, police authorities not putting up wanted posters. This is all in the one speech. Derbyshire then, police have to then issue a statement saying this is not true. We've never refused to put up wanted posters because of people's human rights and then the best one is uh, prisoners getting pornography mm. um, which of course never happened and uh, Nielsen, a very um, revolting man, took a, uh, tried to take a case saying he should be able to get pornography in prison and it didn't even get to the first stage of being heard, it was thrown out immediately. So, so this is where we are and this is what we're up against this yep. is the moment and, and, and this is why we need you Shami no, no, Francesca. Don't you agree, everybody? Well, we, um, a, a very learned and uh, inspiring friend of mine said um, not so long ago, we can all be human rights defenders if we want to be. <laughs> um, so, yes, of course, I want everyone to, to join Liberty and help us save the human rights. Act. What, do you, what do you want for this book? What, what role do you want this book to play in this, this existential battle, really, to save the Human Rights Act? What do you hope for it? Well... Every single page I wrote with a younger generation in mind. That's not that difficult when you get to my age, I have to say. But I had in mind that it, the importance of understanding what universal human rights are and what the project for them was, whether you agree with it, whether you disagree with it, whether you think it was rubbish, whether you think it was an advance, whether you think that Marxism had all that was ever needed to be said about uh, how to create a better world or whether you think that there have been corruptions of Marxism, of liberalism and of every other ism that has tried to create advances and that human rights has something to teach us. Whichever way you look at it, it's really important to understand what it is we might be about to lose. That was my motivation in writing the book entirely. Uh, and, you know, normally if it wasn't, we weren't in the middle of exams, this place would probably be jam-packed with students and all my friends would be standing at the back trying to get in. Um, there aren't that many students here tonight because we, we carefully chose this in the middle of the exam. No, we chose this because it's the 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta, as we said. But this really is a book to me for a younger generation because this is my time, if you like, to depart 
the scene, not literally, I hope, from this world, but, <laughs> but from the Human Rights Fuji Project, from the LSC. As Jane said, I'm staying on as a, as a visiting professor, but I will no longer be involved, as Shami will be, in this campaign to save the Human Rights Act. And there are many people in this room that I hope will be... Will, will, will be helped to think about whether it is worth being involved in some kind of activity to try to defend universal human rights and being in our law. Because make no mistake about it, as I see it, this is a struggle about not what particular legal right we have to do what particular thing, but whether this country wants to embrace the idea of universalism, mm. the great achievement of the post-1948 yeah. conception, that in, when, the, when the chips are down, what matters most is our common humanity, not our nationality, and that is the basis on which right and wrong should be determined. So let's take the hardest issue of all that we, if we're going to be honest about it, have had the greatest struggle in articulating. The one you must read about every single day, social networking, newspapers, news, whatever, however you get your information, which is all these foreign prisoners roaming around the streets terrorising us all, who've served their time in prison and haven't been deported. Now, the... the the latest, the last time we were able, uh, um, my wonderful researchers who've worked with me, and I'm delighted that two of them are here this evening, Helen Wildborn and Amy Williams. Um, the, the last figures I think we were able to get, which are a few years out of date, it was something like 128 foreign national offenders, as they're called, uh, were able to make a case, this is the kind of numbers we're talking about, to stay in this country on the ground of their family, right to a family life. Now, I don't agree with every decision that's ever made, but there's a new ethic that's developed to this, and this is just about the hardest case there is of the argument against the human rights. I think we would all agree that this is the sort of biggest, biggest case to win. And, you know, I, I don't agree with every decision. Why, sh why should anyone agree with every decision? But there's now a new ethic that's developed that, on principle, after people who've committed crimes that they shouldn't have committed have served their time in prison, and there's a judgment that it's safe for them to come out of prison, then they need, if they're not born here or they don't have British citizenship, they need to have a second punishment and that's deported. That apparently is an ethic that we shouldn't even question. And when it's being questioned by the courts in almost every single case, because this person has either been here since they were four or six and knows no other country, be a total foreign land they're being deported to, or because they have a partner or a child who would then be without their partner or child or parents who are, who's depending on this person, um, the, the courts will say, no, you, there is a right to family life here involved, and our judgment is that you should be allowed to stay here. I think that that, judge, that concept, that the decision should be made on what is, not on whether someone is British or not, or born here or not, but whether a family is going to be destroyed or not, I think there's an argument to be made in favour of that ethic. And that's about as hard as it gets. So what I'm trying to say is the decision that we're actually facing as a country is not so much which legal right or, or not we have, but what do we stand for as a people... Who are we? You know, are we this medieval yep. nation that looks to the Magna Carta as a mirror? Or are we capable of standing up for an ethic that says, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, it's humanity that should come first? Well, goodness me, Francesca. Um, 
You've made a huge, huge contribution to this movement, and it is now a human rights movement. It wasn't always in this country, and you've done it with this wonderful book and with your whole career. And it's been—I've been, been monopolising you, but it's been an absolute privilege to monopolise you uh, on this stage. I will continue to monopolise you as a friend. But thank you so much. Thank you for that. Okay, I'd like to thank um, both Shami and Francesca hugely for a very engaging and wide-ranging discussion. Um, this is the time that we will open up to the floor to you for comments, contributions and questions. My favourite are the um, comments that are thinly disguised as questions. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to be very strict because we've only got about 30 minutes. Um, Francesca wants to say something at the end. So can I ask everybody to keep their comments short? Can I ask you to introduce yourself by name and organisation or affiliation? Um, can I warn you that if you do decide to tell us a story of your life story um, or um, a very sad event that you want advice on, I'm going to have to unfortunately probably move you on. Um, and can I just remind you again that the event is being um, recorded, so be as articulate as you can. Thank you. <laughs> no pressure. There was a question over here. The, the, about four up, the girl in the white cardigan. Um, hello, my name's Tiwa Adebayo, and I'm a politics AS student at Haberdashers at School for Girls. Um, firstly, I'd just like to thank you. I learned so much during that. I was really insightful, so thank you very much. Um, so I suppose my main issue with the Human Rights Act would be the way it conflicts sort of with the sovereignty of Parliament. And so... I would just like to know your thoughts on the way the Human Rights Act, which was made in 1998, has semi-entrenched status at the moment. So as the Conservative government have proposed to do, it can be overturned by any new government coming in. Um, would you argue then that in order to protect human rights, really, we need a codified constitution? Great. Thank you. Thank you for the opening first question. <laughs> Luckily, um, I'm going got? to take three more questions and allow the speakers to um, consider their responses to that one. So can I take two or three more? I've got a gentleman over here in a blue shirt. Yeah, uh, hi. Um, thank you. Uh, my name is Bastian Bauman. I'm a PhD student here at the Department of International History. Um, I'm not from Britain myself, and so my question is really, why is this happening in Britain, this backlash? <laughs> I don't know, actually, are there other movements, I would be quite curious, in other countries where something similar is happening? Um, but yeah, why is this happening here? Thank you very much. I'm looking for another girl, because I'm trying to equalise between men and women. A woman at the front in the brown jacket, in the first row. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, my name's Chiara. I'm a law student at SOAS. And I was wondering, it sort of follows on from the semi-entrenched question. Uh, if the worst comes to the worst and the Human Rights Act is repealed, um, I was wondering your thoughts on what's to stop the new British or English Bill of Rights being sort of a political football that can be altered? Because what you were saying about the universality of the ECHR and the Universal Declaration is that they have sort of a higher status. Um, so what would prevent a new national law being sort of very malleable in that way? Okay, and one more. I think the gentleman here had a question. 
uh, Ronan Tynan. Um, just a question about what we do about uh, in our attempts to vindicate human rights when they're not enforceable laws, and we all are very well aware in this particular forum about the ineffectiveness of the international machinery. I just put it to you that really, for example, I, I empathise with you indeed when you were writing your book uh, about the situation in Gaza, for example, because I was pretty moved by that. So I really am asking the question, uh, have we reached a stage where we must ask people in some kind of formal way, maybe we need a kind of a legal mechanism here about the right to protest against countries that cannot be formally called to account. For example, the boycott issue, the academic boycott. For example, universities accepting grants for tyrannical regimes. The situation of Gaoyu in China at the moment and our relationship with China. And we bring it right close to home. I mean, is the LSE in receipt of, of money from China? Are all the major universities? You know, these are uncomfortable questions. When we talk about human rights in a legalistic way, we sometimes drift away from that. And I put it to you very frankly that we're at that stage now. If we really want to vindicate human rights, we must be much more forthright as advocates and campaigners, and I put it to you, do the departments, the legal departments, the universities have a particular responsibility in that regard as well. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Fellow Irish person with lots of words to say. Um, thank you very much, Francesca. Can I ask you to open up, first of all? I, I will respond to that question, and then I'm going to hand over to Shami, who will do brilliantly with all the other questions, because... <laughs> And then Shami, you've heard enough of me, and now you're in for a treat listening to Shami. But I, I will simply say to you, sir, I'm leaving this university except in an honorary capacity, as I've said, so I'm going to join you on the barricades. You're absolutely right, but I also have to refer all your comments to a higher authority. <laughs> right. Sorry. That was... Um... That was a great politician's answer. And so our friend from Habs, um, now you suggested that you thought, either you thought or some people think, it, it matters not, that there's um, a conflict between the Human Rights Act and parliamentary sovereignty. That, as a matter of law, is just not the case. Right? Now, Maybe you think there should be. You know, they, there are arguments to be made, and I have these arguments and discussions with my international counterparts. You know, people have different constitutional arrangements and bills of rights around the world. You can have this debate. Um, but where we are now, the, the, the exquisite constitutional compromise that is our Human Rights Act balances parliamentary sovereignty on the one hand with the rule of law. And you know why that is, because if Parliament speaks absolutely quite clearly in an act of Parliament, as it did in the context of internment after 9-11 in Belmarsh Prison, then the worst that the Supreme Court can do or the higher courts can do is make what's called a declaration of incompatibility. Now, that has only moral, shaming, political effect, and then it's up to Parliament to think again or not. So that's really important to remember when you're listening to all this nonsense that's being peddled in parts of the media and, frankly, by politicians who ought to know better because they voted for the thing, or, right? That you, you, it's very important that we actually look at the Act and understand how it works. So there are powers to interpret other legislation compatibly, but when it cannot be interpreted compatibly, like legislation to intern people in Belmarsh, all the courts can do is make that declaration with shaming effect. But that's good. Because, because, you know, 
ethics and politics and morality and law can all intersect and come together. And what should then happen is that uh, that Parliament reflects and doesn't want to be in breach of fundamental human rights, and it thinks again. And my other point on parliamentary sovereignty is that, I mean, by the way, I, I love fairy tales, okay? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with a good fairy tale, and we do have a fairy tale at the heart of our unwritten constitution. It's called parliamentary sovereignty, because how often do you hear members of the executive... Home Secretary, Prime Minister, banging on about parliamentary sovereignty. And what do they really mean? They mean executive domination. And that's why I'm incredibly proud that at the moment, Liberty is acting for two MPs, David Davis from the Conservatives and Tom Watson from the Labour Party. And they are our clients, and we are using the Human Rights Act to challenge um, the Snoopers Charter and legislation that was rushed through Parliament without even giving um, members of Parliament a proper uh, opportunity to consider very, very intrusive surveillance powers. So what we have with the Human Rights Act is the opportunity to bring to bring uh, the judiciary and the legislature to, together, sometimes in circumstances when the executive is, uh, is actually trying to dominate everyone else. So I think that's important. The second part of your question is maybe we should have a, a, a written constitution, we could have an entrenched Bill of Rights that wouldn't be so, so easy to repeal. Yeah, maybe we should. We can have that, we can have that debate for years, particularly in, in the academy. Um, I'm not an academic. I'm a scruffy human rights campaigner. And, and I believe that uh, in campaigning, as in in life and as in games of poker, sometimes you stick and sometimes you twist. And there is no substantial voice or majority in our current political elites that would actually do something better than the Human Rights Act, something more powerful or more entrenched. That is not on offer. So don't be fooled by this nonsense about the British Bill of Rights. It's a fig leaf for actually taking our rights away. Can I just, Francesca, can I ask you perhaps to address the second question about why do you think this is happening in the UK? 25 years of watching this game, why do you think it's happening and happening now? Well, oh dear. (laughs) I'm conscious that we're living in a time of retrenchment, Um, a time... I don't, although this is happening in the UK, I think there are parallels all over Europe, um, which match a period where, at the very forces in the world that have broadened out, such as, you know, I hate to use this jargon, but globalization, a sort of often referred to as neoliberalism, which is another way of saying forces out there that people feel out of control with, that are affecting their everyday lives, their capacity to know, you know, how they're going to earn a living, how they're going to get through their lives in a, in a, in a way that makes sense to them, and a home that they can afford, etc. That as people have felt less and less, I think, in control of the basics of life, so they look internally and um, that good, glad, confident mourning which is reflected in the kind of optimism that we've been discussing today and that I try and capture I hope I did a good enough job at capturing the extraordinary optimism that went into drafting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights after the worst conflagration the world had ever known 
And all that came out of that, this endless treaties, the Africa, you know, Africa, as I said, was left out. And then you get, you know, from, from the actual drafting process because of colonization. Then as soon as there's independence in sufficient number of cu- countries, you get, you know, the African charter on uh, human and people's rights, which has its own slant and own perspective on human rights, which is marvelous. And the African Court of Human Rights has been years and years of building and developing this idea of humanity, this idea that humanity is not monochrome, it's not the same everywhere, but it's what we hold absolutely in common fundamentally. We're now getting a period of moving away from that, certainly within Europe, very, very visibly so, all across Europe and inward-looking. The, the equivalent of UKIP-type parties everywhere in, in, in most of Western Europe and, and a lot of Eastern Europe. So I think that in that context um, and in the specific challenges that were presented, let's be honest, after 9-11, which was less than a year after the Human Rights Act came in, it's really difficult to imagine a more challenging set of situations that face the Human Rights Act, the idea that this country was now going to embrace an outward-looking universal perspective on fundamental rights with those two as the backdrop. Um, It's very difficult to imagine in a way that we wouldn't have had this this process. And an an optimistic way of looking at where we now where we are now, is that finally we're having the arguments that we should probably have had when the Human Rights Act was introduced. Um, I, I do discuss in my book, because I, I had a little bit of a role um, with the then Labour government and, and, and before it was a government in opposition in developing the Human Rights Act. And uh, many of us commented that it might be a reasonable idea to consult on it at the very least. Um, and one of the reasons why they wanted to use the European Convention on Human Rights is the text of this Bill of Rights, because, you know, the Human Rights Act was introduced as a Bill of Rights and there was no other context for it. Our own Bill of Rights, but are based on universal values, not on narrow um, nationalist values. Um, but they didn't want it to be broader than the European Convention because they didn't want to get into a whole debate about what these rights should be. So they didn't want to consult. Uh, if you don't consult, then something gets introduced, you know, in the back door. People don't know what it is. And immediately after 9-11, and in fact, yeah, immediately after 9-11, the government then, you know, saw it as a thorn in its side, which some people might say was evidence of the Human Rights Act doing its work. Um, as opposed to the Magna Carta, which had no effect. Hence, it's celebrated, human rights sat, repealed. <laughs> One level, it is that simple. Um, and and also, so it's not surprising, in a way, that we're at the situation. But it's also, here. let's be, I mean, I hate to be so blunt, um, that's just kind of what I do, but um, the vested interests, mm. to, you know, pitted yeah. against, um, you know, the newspapers that, frankly, don't like Article 8, not really just because of the foreigners that they run headlines, but because, because of private privacy, life. Because yeah. of privacy, because of phone hacking, etc., etc., etc. There are very powerful newspaper editors, you can guess who they are, who are on the public record about this. There they would be no... Phone hacking was perfectly legal before the Human Rights Act was introduced, and the, the laws governing phone hacking were introduced because of the European Convention on Human Rights and the need to make sure our legislation was compliant with the European Convention once the Human Rights Act was introduced. We wouldn't have the whole phone hacking scandal without it. So you can see, from a business point of view, if you ran a newspaper, you'd have a reason to want it repealed. In the end, I agree with Francesca. Globalisation is not a choice, it's a reality. The danger, it seems to me, is that we will just have internationalism for who? For big corporations, 
for organised criminals, for terrorists, but not for ordinary people and their values. This is divide and rule by powerful interests who don't want people to share values and share protection. And I just think, in the end, we all have a choice to make, particularly the next generation. It's a really simple choice in the early years of the 21st century. Do you choose to be a human being everywhere on the planet, protected as a human being everywhere on the planet. Is that your aspiration? Is that your choice? Or do you choose to have the bare protection of being a citizen in one tiny tiny corner of the globe? I don't think that's a choice. Yeah, I'm happy to take some more questions from you. I have Helen here, first of all, and then the guy in the check shirt behind her. Thanks. Um, Helen Wilber from the British Institute of Human Rights, and it follows on from Shami's point about parliamentary sovereignty or maybe executive sovereignty and a couple of other things that have been said. And you mentioned the, the kind of the key role in the model um, for the Human Rights Act, um, the, the key role that Parliament has and the key role that the judiciary have in kind of holding those with power to account, but also picking up the point about whether we can all be human rights activists. We all have that in us and, and the key role that people play in holding those with power to account. And one of the aims of the Human Rights Act, as it was going through Parliament, said several times that it was going to create this culture of respect for human rights across the UK. And through the work that we do at BIHR, we are seeing now how it is transforming our public services and how it really is kind of embedding into um, the police services, whether it's the work we do with health and social care um, or whether it's social workers, how they're really starting to use human rights to embed that into their work, just think about how our public services are designed and delivered. And that benefits all of us. And that's something I think that's been lost in the debate. We don't hear about those stories enough. And I thought that was important to kind of express. Thank you, Helen. The gentleman behind in the blue shirt. Hi, Robert Craig. Um, I don't mean to be unduly heuristic at this point, but um, I just wanted to challenge the notion that the Human Rights Act isn't binding, which you, which you, uh, which you suggested, Chami. Um, of course, as a matter of legal technicality, it's not, but the political reality is it's happened in the USA, it's happened in Canada, and it's happened every time we've seen legal answers to political questions. Over time, we see a judicialization of the debate, of the discourse. And we now have a situation where every single DOI, with one exception, has been uh, changed as a result of parliamentary action. We also have a situation where the ECHR has a binding enforcement mechanism that's recently been amended, to which the UK, as a signatory, must comply. There is now enforcement proceedings going on over prisoners' votes. We know where it's going to end. So I don't. I think the suggestion that it's that there's some sophisticated mechanism. Yes, there was an attempted sophisticated mechanism, but it has failed. Well, I dis- I disagree because I don't think it's a failure when politicians actually listen to a higher court and decide that people shouldn't be detained without police interview or charge or trial in Belmarsh Prison. I don't consider that a failure, sir. I consider that a great outcome after a really important constitutional conversation. Um, so that, and that is the model. I'm sorry, but it just is. That is the model with a, sec- with a declaration of incompatibility under the Human Rights Act. And you can't say that the model isn't working because Parliament actually chooses to reflect 
get and to change the law to actually agree with the judges and to implement human rights. Um, as, for the, as for the convention, you're right. We are in breach of international law if we keep flouting the judgment of the court. But in the end, politics will, tr- politics will decide whether we are to be a pariah state and not to be, uh, not to be an active, confident uh, member of that family of nations or whether we walk. And, and yes, there may be proceedings, but here we are and we're still sitting in Britain and prisoners don't vote. So I, I, um, I disagree, but that's great. We're at the LSE, we're allowed to disagree. Can I okay, I'm going to Helen's. Yeah, I was going to take a couple more questions sure. and then come back to you, okay? Helen will be patient. Jamie, I think, had a question um, up the back. I'm not just using people I know, I promise. <laughs> Uh, hello, it's uh, Jamie Burton from Just Fair. Um, thanks very much for letting us listen in to such a fascinating conversation. Uh, Francesca, you said something that I found uh, really important. You said that when you were writing the book, you had sort of future generations in mind, or at least you had the young in mind. And it seems to me one thing that really concerns the younger generations in particular is growing inequality, both in our country and internationally. And I just want to know if you have any brief thoughts about how we might seek to persuade people that the dialogue and, and the ideology behind human rights actually has something to say about that growing inequality uh, and that debate. Thank you. Can I have one more question? And I'm hoping to have a question from a woman. Could I have the red jacket in the middle, please? Thank you. Hi, thank you. Um, my name is Ajwa, and my question is in relation to um, ways in which businesses can and does influence um, human rights. One of the increasing areas is that um, there is an expansion that although businesses don't have any obligations to um, promote human rights, they do have um, a I wouldn't say an obligation, but they they are supposed to respect human rights. And um, I think this is an area that is gaining momentum, um, especially after 2011, following the Ruggy um, principles. And my question is, what are your thoughts on this? And do you think that this is, is there any hope in this area? Do you see businesses actually encouraging human rights to be protected? Because if you look at sectors such as um, extractive um, sectors and in, in places where human rights are indirectly affected by business operations, and I think businesses do have a role to play in respecting and upholding human rights. Thank you very much. I absolutely agree with you that business... Um, look, I shouldn't be teaching my proverbial grandmother to suck eggs over It's going here. a bit far. But, uh, <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Ellen, well, you're the one who's talking Big about your dotage. I should have sat in the middle, clearly. You're dotage and you're going to retire from the scene and all this nonsense. So, um, Eleanor Roosevelt famously said human rights begin in small places close to home, right? So we're thinking about human rights, you know, and, and Francesca's so right, so right. We need human rights law. We need the law as a backstop. But if, if human rights only exist in the courtroom, they will dwindle and they will die. They have to, yes, ultimately be protected in the courtroom, but they also need to be in the classroom, in the living room, in the newsroom, on the shop floor, everywhere where people are, everywhere where their lives are interacting with other people's lives, everywhere where their rights could either be promoted or violated. And, of course, the workplace and the consumer space is an obvious um, place where, um, where, there, where, where human rights can be at work or can be violated. 
And we could go on all night about the roles that, that, that businesses could play um, in, in, in human rights protection in Britain and around the world. Um, but as Francesca so brilliantly describes in the book, ultimately we're talking about human rights as an ethical framework as well as law and, and politics and everything else. And so if employees are engaged and consumers are engaged and employers are engaged, then you will, then you will see the possibility for people to be treated with dignity in the workplace, for people not to be discriminated against in the workplace, for consumers, as they have done in great human rights struggles, including famously in South Africa, to, to, um, to use their consumers power to, to, to help achieve a wonderful human rights outcome which was the end of apartheid in South Africa. So we can all, I'm sure, think of all sorts of ways, large and small, domestic, local, national, international, in, in which business could be, uh, could be upping its game on human rights protection. Fantastic. Agreed. And I'd just like to use this opportunity to sort of bring, to respond to all the questions together. Um, and bring sort of politics and some of the more academic questions we were looking at earlier, align them in my response. Um, because, first, I think we have to be clear that the target of replacing the Human Rights Act with what is called the British Bill of Rights is not simply at trying to ensure that bad people and foreigners can't claim rights. It's a bit more radical than that if we are to use as our baseline the Conservative Party's policy document they produced in October, Orwellianly, sorry to be so partial, Orwellianly called protecting human rights in the UK. Um, because they didn't just talk about readdressing uh, how we define torture, how we define family life, um, but also what was described as trivial cases, mm. that they would Quite. ensure that the courts no longer took trivial, trivial cases. cases. Rosa Park, why didn't you just go to the back of the bus? <laughs> so trivial. Now, now <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they talked, to, the, the policy document talks about non-trivial cases as involving the criminal law, uh, liberty, and can anyone guess it? Property. So it's a very, very interesting perspective on what's not trivial. Well, that, I assume, means that everything else is trivial. And um, that takes me back to this theme I was trying to develop earlier and that I hope I try to develop in the book, which is the difference, if you like, or the fundamental category difference between Enlightenment values, certainly in their sort of ideal type, and post-war human rights values. Because classically the Enlightenment was um, about creating a society, John Stuart Mill talked about it beautifully, um, he wrote on liberty, like Shammy, um, <laughs> um, a society where the state keeps out has a neutral conception of the good unless there is harm. That's when the state intervenes. Now, there are many critiques of this from a socialist point of view, from my point of view, most powerfully from a feminist point of view, because of the argument that this not only ignores what goes on in the home, for women, for children, for people with disabilities, etc., um, but actually potentially gives licence for, you know, the classical male citizen with whom, in whom which the Enlightenment values had in mind, gives licence for him to do what he wants in his home because that's where you're autonomous and free. Now, my dearest friend and comrade-in-arms sitting in the front, Jane Campbell, Baroness Jane Campbell, um, beautifully wrote, 
I thought, um, in, in her inimical style, uh, a piece where she challenged um, this concept of human rights being about bringing rights home. Do you remember all that? The, the Labour government, when they introduced the Human Rights Act, talked about bringing rights home from Europe to here. And she, Jane said, well, what about bringing rights into the home? And that was one of the targets of universal human rights. It wasn't just universal in the sense of all human beings in terms of nationality, but all human beings in their totality. And this requires the state to take action, not just to refrain from acting. And that is one of the targets, believe me, of the proposed Bill of Rights as is currently framed in the Conservative policy document. That's all we can look at at this point. That's one of their main targets. That's why you get civil libertarians, you know, like Dominic Raab, who's now a minister in the Ministry of Justice, working on the replacement of the Human Rights Act, who believes in liberty, stands up for liberties, but wrote a book about the Human Rights Act and the European Convention called The Assault on Liberty. And he says in turn that the problem with the European Convention and the Human Rights Act is it requires states to do things. It requires states to do things and it requires people to be dependent on states. And I'm, what brings to mind when I th- hear this is Anatole France and his famous aphorism that, and talking about the Enlightenment notion of equality so differently because you've, Jane, Jamie, you raised the issue of equality and, and Helen of public services. I hope I'm bringing it all together in business. You know, Anatole France attacking the, the Enlightenment um, or, or, or highlighting the Enlightenment concept of equality and which now stands very differently from the human rights concept of equality when Anatole France said the law in its majesty equally forbids the rich and poor alike from sleeping under bridges, begging in the streets and stealing bread. That is what human rights values are aimed at changing by providing a role for the state in addressing those kind of inequalities and that is in the sights of the replacement of the Human Rights Act. I couldn't possibly have asked for a more perfect way to close the session, so I am going to stop there. Um, before I hand over to Francesca to have the final, final word, um, I'd just like you to, with me, thank both Francesca and Shani. Thank you. Um, I haven't planned what I'm going to say now. I just know at a book launch you're meant to say something like this and I want to say something like this. So it's all going to just come from the heart totally unprepared. First of all, I want to thank Jane and Shami for being fantastic sisters in arms. Um, We're not quite Leanne, Nicola and Natalie, but I think a group Secondly, I want to thank my publishers, Routledge, and I'm delighted to have two uh, representatives here in the front row. And without their Routledge's patience uh, and forbearance, there wouldn't be a book. Uh, and I hope uh, that the book has done credit to your long-suffering tolerance of me. Um, but I have been told that other than what's on sale tonight, the first short print run has actually sold out. Uh, So my thanks go to that. 
I want to thank Zoe Gillard, where is Zoe, who is the manager for the Centre for the Study of Human Rights, who's organised absolutely everything tonight and so many other things besides uh, this event, the reception, all your invitations, and runs the centre, as she has tonight, with this extraordinary efficiency and calm, while someone like me flaps around her, driving her mad. I don't know how she does it. I'm sure she'll be delighted that I won't be doing that so much anymore. Thank you, Zoe. Now, I want to thank Amy Williams and Helen Wildbore, who worked with me on the Human Rights Futures Project, who are here tonight. I'm so pleased. Their scholarship is reflected in this book. Um, and without them, this book wouldn't have happened. This also implies to Brienne Allen, um, who unfortunately, very un- in- unconveniently, is in Australia and therefore couldn't be here tonight. But their fantastic work kept me going all the years um, and I can't thank them enough I'm indebted to them and finally most importantly to me there are a lot of people in this room and I know I don't know you all um, and it's wonderful to meet the people I've never met before but there are also a number of people here who I have worked with or been inspired from or gone on holiday with or had fun with or got drunk with (laughs) or even married, gave birth to, (laughs) and, best of all, grew up with. And it means a huge amount to me to see you here tonight, because this is kind of my leaving do, and it is the end of a long period of my life of working in human rights in this way. Shami doesn't take any notice of me every time I tell her I'm leaving the scene. You could hear before, she thinks it's all a load of nonsense. But I am going to take more of a back seat, for sure. Um, There are people here who work with me at the Runnymede Trust. There is my former boss, Baroness Usha Prashar, who gave me my first job, my first proper job in this field. She's here tonight. There are Friends here who were comrades with me, or rather I was with them, the Migrants Action Group and other anti-racist and anti-deportation campaigns. There are friends here from Liberty, from the British Institute of Human Rights that I'm proud to be a trustee of and that does such fantastic work, and for justice and for all the other related NGOs human rights NGOs. There's my wonderful friend Jane, comrade in arms that I mentioned before. We've been very naughty girls together. You'll have to get us drunk to tell you more about that. (laughs) Tanika, who's here from America. I don't know where she is. Other friends, Jewish Council for Racial Equality. We used to be in the Black Jewish Forum together for years. Many, many people in this room. My nephew and his partner, who are an inspiration to me. They give me hope for the future. My uh, friend, my daughter's Tanya's uh, close friends, all sitting in the front row together, absolutely give me inspiration for the future. Anne Owens, who was a great colleague over many years, used to be director of justice. She's sitting next to Nigel Rodley. In other words, there's, there's my wonderful friend Margot from the Centre for the Study of Human Rights. I know that if I carry on, I will definitely offend a lot of people. <laughs> Unless I put my glasses on and go to the opticians and get new glasses, I can't see most of the people in the room. (laughs) And so I've already offended some of you, but the point is you're here and you mean an awful lot to me. Thank you for coming. Thank you for inspiring me. Keep up the struggle, everybody. Now that I'm leaving academia in this way, I can be as partial like that and unacademic as I like. Keep up the struggle. (laughs) 